Hi, this is Alan Guthrie, and I'm co-founder of Blasted Heath, and you're listening to Booked. These guys are fucking great. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. This is the second in our four-part Shindig and Chi-Town series of episodes. Uh, the Shindig and Chi-Town took place on Friday, March 2nd at the Billy Goat Tavern in Chicago. Uh, it was hosted or presented by Burnt Bridge and Flywheel Magazine. The actual hosts for the evening, the MC duties were split between Jason Stewart and David James Keaton. Um, before we tell you about tonight's um, readers or the stories that you're going to hear, I'm going to preface this a little bit. This actually starts out with uh, David James Keaton uh, about to introduce the next reading. I don't know if you guys noticed if you listen to the first episode, but there are at least two distinct times where you can hear the waiter interrupting the the presenter to ask if anybody wants any drinks. So that's really all the setup you need to go into this and, and kind of understand where uh, DJK is coming from when, <laughs> when this when this particular episode gets going. But uh, immediately after that, you're going to hear um, you're going to hear an, a reading by Amy Luke, who is um, David James Keaton's child bride or fiance. Um, he refers to commonly as his lady friend as well. Um, she's going to be reading a story by Richard Godwin, who uh, was not able to attend because I believe he's in England or some shit, I think, is what uh, is what David says. <laughs> But uh, you're, what you're going to hear is uh, something by Richard Godwin, who's the author of Apostle Rising and Mr. Glamour, um, read by uh, the lovely Amy Luke. Yeah, and once Amy finishes up, Joshua Schriftman reads, uh, he's a teacher at the University of Miami and is working on a novel, <laughs> which is tentatively titled So Sorry About, well, I guess depending on who you're asking, it could be called So Sorry About India or Indiana or Indianapolis or Indians. Uh, there's a little bit of a back and forth between uh, Keaton and Joshua about this. Um, anyway, uh, the the story that he reads is called Down the Length of the Valley, and uh, it's uh, interesting to listen to, so I hope you enjoy that. Without further ado, here's David James Keaton. Okay. Good drink before you start, baby. Everybody drinks all good? Uh, yep. Okay. We're all good. All right, back. Thanks. You're out. <laughs> Let's remember to tip our waiter Pops his head in and fucks this up Every like 15 <laughs> minutes or so That Lullaby He's like See that guy back there in the long hair I'm sure in a hotel room with him And he took a shit this morning That felt like it was Five feet away Like a butterfly in my ear That's like this fucking waiter Every five seconds Right behind my head but I appreciate what you do for all of us. Give him the empty glasses. He needs them immediately. He needs these immediately. Okay, Richard Godwin is a widely published crime and horror writer. His second novel, Mr. Ga- Mr. Glamour, is newly released and out now. Published by Black Jackal Books. Available online at Amazon and all good retailers. His first crime novel, Apostle Rising, was published last year. In it, a serial killer is crucifying politicians and recreating the murder scenes of an old case. This dude sent me this bio online. Hold on, hold on. It is available online on the shelves of all good bookstores. It has met excellent reviews worldwide, sold foreign rights throughout Europe, 
The author's work has appeared in many magazines and anthologies. You can find more about him at richardgodwin.net. His chin wags at the slaughterhouse are interviews he has conducted with writers can be found on his blog, where you'll find a full list of his works. He's not here today. He lives, like, in Britain or some shit. His representative, my wife, Amy Luke, will be his doppelganger. She's going to attempt to read... Wait, wait. Attempt to read this in an English accent channeled through a southern accent because I think this guy was making fun of Americans. This is Barbecue the Sink Beast. Well, first of all, I'd like to dispel a nasty rumor that I'll be reading this in a British accent. Um, I tried it you for promised. like a second, and all my British accents sound like Mrs. Haversham or something, and, it, and you, you wouldn't be able to follow it because... Um, okay, I'm going to just fucking scream, and I can't do that in a British accent. So, um, that aside, I am going to try and do justice to Mr. Godwin's Barbecue the Sink Beast. Brace yourselves. <laughs> they found it in the kitchen sink. Just a little bit of head jutting up over the thick layer of grease that lay on top of the filthy water they served guests when they weren't alone. Harry stood there looking down at it as Jocelyn scratched her ass through her nightie. What the fuck is it, she said don't know. He grabbed a skewer and jabbed it. Hear that squeal? Sounds like a fucking pig. How the fuck would a pig get in our sink, Harry? Think it's food, Joss? Get rid of it. Harry turned to look at Jocelyn as she stood by the open door, the light wind outside rippling her nightie and the sun passing through it. His eyes wandered down to the blur at her crotch and he said, let's go upstairs. You want to fuck me? Get rid of that thing. Why? It might come upstairs and rape me. Harry considered the proposition, running his oil-stained hand ponderously across his chin. I love to hear your bristles crackle in the horny afternoon, Jocelyn said. Well, I ain't shaved yet. You never shave, Harry. So the deal is, dispatch this beast and I get your peach. <laughs> Jocelyn nodded. Harry opened a cupboard which had knives attached with leather straps to the inside of the door. He removed a large bag which he placed on the floor and unzipped. He pulled a long knife from it and inspected it. It glistened. All Harry's knives were clean. He always cleaned them afterwards. Jocelyn liked to watch. She also liked to hear them scream. She said Harry had the cleanest cutting action she'd ever encountered, and she'd encountered a few of them, as the scars on her breasts clearly showed. I think this'll do the job, Harry said. He walked over to the sink, where its head was rising from the filthy water. It had black eyes with long lashes like a girl, and its bloated head looked as though someone had kicked it, and it was swelling up with bruising. I can't see a body, Harry said, peering down at it. Jocelyn walked over to the sink. Maybe it don't have one. It was looking at them, its eyes darting from Harry to Jocelyn and back again as Harry jabbed it with his knife. It screamed and Harry pulled away a section of gray flesh that dangled like rubber. He walked to the back door and flicked it off, 
watching the flesh land in the cadaverous yard. He walked back in and inspected the sink. It was trying to climb out. It had one limp foot perched on the edge of the sink and was scraping a long curved nail against the side, coughing spittle from its crimson mouth as it jabbered in a strange tongue. What the fuck is this, Harry said. It's got a foot like, foot like a duck-billed platypus. Kill it! So Harry started stabbing it, puncturing it repeatedly with his knife until it was red and dripping. He stood back and waited to see if it was dead. Jocelyn looked at Harry and felt a surge of arousal. He had his knife by his side, and it was dripping blood onto the soiled, soiled linoleum floor. You know how many times we come on this floor, she said. You want to fuck me with that knife when you're done? Just then it started shrieking again. It jumped up and stood on the edge of the sink and pulled its cock from its fur and stood there masturbating at Jocelyn. Harry stabbed it again, this time lodging the knife deep in its fur. He waved it around on the edge of his knife and it flew off the end and landed by the door. It stood there jabbering and then ran at Jocelyn and sprayed her with yellow cum. She wiped the strands of glutinous ejaculation from her yellow cheek and kicked it. It flew against the wall where it started barking at them. My face is so red right now, I can tell. She's never seen this story before. I, I, I read it like 20 minutes ago for the first time, and I was like, what the fuck are you having me read? What the fuck is this, Harry said. He went over to the cupboard and got out his flamethrower. Pass me a paraffin, Joss, he said. It was making obscene noises at them, a strange cacophony of high-pitched whistles and groans that sounded sexual in nature. Then it ran at Jocelyn, waving its cock at her as, as Harry doused it in paraffin and set it alight. They stood there watching it ignite like a Roman candle and run outside into the yard, spraying piss all over the walls. We's lovers, ain't we? Harry said, laying an arm around Jocelyn's shoulder. She reached down and felt his crotch. Sure enough, she said. They walked upstairs past the heads stuck to the wall, past the hides and the pelts that lay on the floor, past the blood stains on the light switch, and into the bedroom where several claws lay on the faded carpet. Jocelyn pulled off her nightie as Harry walked over and ran his hand across her nipples. They look like buckshot, baby, he said. Nothing like a little frying to get me wet. Come and feel me, Harry. Run your knife, knife hand deep inside me. They lay in the twilight, watching the shapes blur so that the claws looked like small knives on the floor. Harry got up and went down to the kitchen where he got himself a beer from the fridge and walked over to the back door. He looked down at the burnt body and stepped into the yard. He had to tread over the clumps of fur that lay scattered everywhere. Some of them were desiccated. Some had bits of flesh attached to them and were in various stages of decomposition. At the edge of the yard was a head, dried and bleaching from the sun. Some animals were gathering at the yard's end, scavenging for bits of still edible meat. 
They watched Harry, staying back until he went inside. He cleaned his knife, polished it, and put it back in its case. Then he got the body from the yard and put it on the floor. Jocelyn came into the kitchen and stood there looking at it. Smells good, she said. You want to barbecue the sink beast? Get your fine old sauces dripping. They already are, baby. I'll spoon the flesh into your savage mouth. Jocelyn curled her tongue up to her lip as the light caught the gold stud in it, and Harry started making supper. Yeah. You got balls. This is the one that's picking up. All right, we're going to start it up again. Um, it's being recorded, immortalized. Okay. What we got? What we got? Joshua Schriffman. This guy over here. Hold up. Kind of build up the hype, wind you up. He received his MFA a couple years back from the University of Pittsburgh, now teaches writing. <laughs> for the University of Miami while perfecting the final chapter of his first book. Oh, you can hear it. Which is tentatively titled So Sorry About Indiana. His recent work has appeared in Flywheel. He's fucking Indiana. What did I say, Indiana? It's tentatively titled So Sorry About Indianapolis. His recent work has appeared in Flywheel, The Pinch, and Ninth Letter. And, whoa. He wrote, yeah, he wrote his bio. Um... Yeah, I'm not gonna read any of that hey, shit. Hey. I will say, I will say that uh, a couple years ago, me and Josh exchanged underwear for some reason because he had a certain kind of underwear. We were at a party and I put it on a scarecrow at his house. Took a picture, and when everybody got drunk and fell asleep, I took the underwear home. I'm wearing it tonight. He wears boxer briefs, and they're fucking amazing. I never thought about the boxer briefs. Joshua Schriftman taught me about underwear. It's called uh, Down the Length of the Valley. I pull up to the intersection at the bottom of the valley and into the gravel lot of the house where I live. I open the car door, feel the gravel crunch under my feet, and try to drink from my flask but instead spill bourbon down my chin. Palomino's sleep in the field across the street and under the moon their manes gleam like bone. The house I live in shares the same bone light and in its three apartments, and its three apartments look like cut-off limbs, or echoes, afterthoughts, or afterbirths, each belonging to the other. And even though I know Nora's with Caleb tonight, I imagine her inside, waiting. She had been over two nights before, but had to rush off. She had told Caleb she was just out for a gas station coffee. I stopped her at the door as she tried to leave. I didn't want to be alone. I fell to my knees in front of her and threw my arms around her hips. I pressed the side of my face against the black velour of her long skirt covering her thighs, and then I pressed my mouth between her legs and held her up when her knees began to give. I look at the house and steady myself with one hand on the car, 
The cows in the field behind the house start, stare. Blank cow stares at me. I moo at them. I think of sleeping alone, of want, of waking alone, and I moo again. Then of Nora and her mother, who was institutionalized in Richmond. And soon, soon I'm lowing with all the breath I can muster, and the cows just stand there and stare. Her mother, who drove Nora's sister to suicide 10 years ago November, tried to free Nora's demons with a kitchen knife when she was seven. And then I think of her father in Miami, who left them all with no one but each other. I move again with all my might. I think of Caleb and his patience, his saintly love, and then of Nora's soft giving flesh. And I move again and then again, and I keep hurling my deepest moves into the night until the vibrations in my gut make me feel too sick to go on. And I'll serve it up, boy, I hear. On a silver platter, a silver platter like the moon. The moon, boys, a silver platter, a silver platter. Do you see, boy? I'll serve up the moon, it's a silver platter. I cough, check for the cows, and look back at the man who'd spoken. My first thought is to make some stupid joke to excuse myself for mooing. My second thought is to say something to soothe the lunatic, but then... To hell with it. State I'm in, I couldn't do either. I make a second and this time fruitful attempt to drain my flask, and I carefully level my eyes at the tree-like man standing in front of the house. His real name I don't know, but in my head he's called the Laughing Man. He mutters to himself as he walks, and then he laughs. It starts on a mirthful note, on an okay note at least, but then the laugh doesn't end when you think it should. Instead it goes on like a faux pas at first, but then the laugh doesn't end when you think it should. Instead it goes on, oops. Instead it goes on like a third person involved in the conversation so that the sound becomes a malign thing, the sound an assassin would use, the sound an assassin would make in a place where laughter could be used as a bludgeon. The laughing man, my triplex neighbor, who now stands at his front door, looks up from his feet and says, and I'll serve it up, boy, I will, yes, sir, I'll serve it up on a silver platter, like the moon. The moon, boy, is a silver platter, do you see? I'll serve it up, I'll serve up the moon, a silver platter. And then he barks out a chunk of laugh and spits up, moon! <laughs> and then he laughs for a long time, gasping, crying. And I wait for it to be through with him. I wedge the empty flask down into my hip pocket and wait. And when he's finally through, I ask him how he is. Fine, I'm fine, I'm okay. I'm serving it up, bladder. Can I get a ride? A ride into town, can I get a ride? The bladder's a moon! Just got back from town, sorry. Is there something you need I could help you with? A bite! I'm fine, I just might, I'm fine! I might like a bite, a bite, a ride into town, ha! I glance at my front door. Here's what waits for me inside the amputee suite. A floor, a ceiling, a mattress, and four thin walls. A few miles down the length of the valley, though, there's a 24-hour service station when I've stopped at before just to fill the long, dark hours. And I ask the laughing man if that will do. He ambles to the passenger side of my car and waits at the locked door. I get in and reach across to let him in. The old, they should be frail, but this one, he's tall and square-shouldered, and he crumples himself up to get inside. 
He's close shaven and with a well-trimmed mustache, but his eyebrows and ear hairs teem. And on a given night, when the wind rolls through the valley and I hear it blasting at my door, I hear him too through the walls, talking loudly like he's on the phone with a deaf relative or trying to explain calculus to an idiot. I tried talking to him once before, but he just kept saying the same words. Like Norwegian gold, threads of gold, like threads of gold upon the sea. It seemed like poetry, so I jotted it down on the back of a parking ticket and Googled it at the library. Turned out he had been reciting bits of a jingle for an imported brand of oil-packed sardines. Our doors slam shut in unison, and I back out and start to drive. Nice night for a night, I, nice night for a drive, I say. I'm aware, as aware of talking to a madman as I am of the dryness of my flask. A nice night for a drive, a nice night. So what takes you out on a nice night like this? What, I asked. Well, I, I was just coming back from the bars in town. The silver bars in town are nice on a platter, boy, nice! Yeah, I, I guess, but you know what? It, it's kind of shit for me tonight. Shit! You were shit on a silver platter, moon shit on a silver bar! Moon shit. <laughs> yeah, in the bars in town tonight, man, you know. You ever uh, go up to the bars? I've, I've never seen you there. I'll serve it up on a platter, boy, on a platter! Moonshit on a platter at the silver bars in town tonight! Hell yeah, that's right. Shit on a silver platter at the bars in town tonight. But I can't blame the bars for what's not there. Fuck the bars, boy! He says, fuck the bars, I'll tell you what's not in the moonshit, boy, I'll tell you! <laughs> fuck the bars, yeah. I'll tell you! So, so tell me. What? <laughs> Oh, it's what? The, it's the hundredth customer. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> so tell me what's not in the moon shit. Well, you, oh, sorry, that was me. So tell me what's not in the moon shit. Will you tell me what's not in the moon shit at the Silver Bar in town tonight? Damn straight, I will. Damn straight. You will. Damn straight at the Silver Bars at the Moon tonight. I laugh a little because I like this empty beat. This beat along the gentle curves of the road, the curves that I could take in just the moonlight if I chose. Two miles down the road, there's a hard curve in the road, and after that a few more, and a one-lane tunnel, but it's just a rolling beat of curves in the bone moon until. What's your name? I ask. Damn moon on a silver platter! Right, platter moon, yeah, the girl. You know the girl? The damn girl, ha! <laughs> I stop laughing, and we drive along for a minute as he keeps it up. I glance over at him as its new fit takes him, and his eyes are full of terror. We pass on my side of the road a weathered trailer. Out front, past a one-screened porch, something like a lawn tries to hide a growth of plastic kids stuff. And from the porch, a flag of faded patchwork flower rises, pointing at the endless night. Just past the trailer and its flag, there's a dirt lot a place to turn around should it become necessary. A few weeks ago, Nora asked me to pull over there. She got out, and I got out, and we stood under the night. I watched for oncoming traffic to see if the trailer folk were bothered by us standing there, and I waited to see what Nora was doing. She came around the car, took my hand, and gave me a fluttering look with her big gray eyes. It meant to be bashful or loving or maybe innocent, I think. She pulled me into the headlights and pressed against me, moving her body slow with the car's running music, which had crept out into the night. She was dancing with me. This is such a night, she said. 
The damn girl, I say forcefully to stop the laughing man's torrents. She wasn't at the bars tonight. She never is. I wait for his laughter to stop, but it doesn't, so I continue. The bars in town were crap, but you'd like a bite. There's food to eat at the bars, but nothing that's any good. Nothing good for a bite. There were girls at the bars tonight, but not the one that's right. Oh shit, I rhymed. This amuses me, so I laugh. A rhyme, he gasps, and I can't stand anymore the look in his eyes. So I turn off the inside lights and the headlights too, and he yells, A bite to eat with a girl on the moon! A bite to eat with a girl that's right! She isn't there, I remind him. She's not fucking there. She's on the fucking moon, married to a man who still knows how to fuck! I yell as I step on the gas late, and we turn into a turn. It's a night, nice night to be fucking on the moon, and I'll tell you, boy, I'll tell you. I'll serve it up on the silver moon. I'll serve up on a platter. The girl on the moon, the girl on the moon is at a silver bar, I say. The silver bar is crap tonight. The moon shit is not sane tonight. The girl on the moon is insane tonight. She's getting a bite behind the silver bars. She's behind the silver bars. She's nothing. She's nothing. She's, she's a bite to eat, boy. A bite to eat. She's a bite to eat. It's tonight, it's tonight, a hell of a night. I cough between laughs and sobs that are now racking my body too. The night, for a night, for a bite on the moon. It's a night, and I'm laughing so hard tears are streaming down my face. Right, right, my sides ache from it, my face hurts, my head splits. I arch my back to get my flash from my pocket, but it's still fucking empty. And the wheel jerks in my hand, and I look at the laughing man again, and he's not laughing now, and his eyes burn white as turns up the road come together and draw us closer to this station. And I scream through gasps of my laughter. It's such a night. It's a hell of a night. Okay, and you just heard a couple stories, uh, one by Richard Godwin, read by Amy Luke, and another by Joshua Schriftman. But there was a little bit at the beginning, and uh, any thoughts about uh, what Keaton had to say to that waiter? Absolutely hilarious and totally justified. So I don't want the servers of the world to start sending us hate mail. This guy was a butterfly in the ear, as Mr. Keaton so eloquently put it. Yeah, and you have to think, I mean, it's not a dynamic where, like... I understand that they're trying to make money by selling alcohol and everything, but like it's the kind of place where you order your food at the counter, you know, and it's not like a big fancy restaurant or anything where you expect like servers to come around. If you wanted a beer, you were just going to walk up to the bar and get it. So I, I think Keaton had every right to be kind of annoyed by this, uh, this weird weirdo kind of waiter. Well, you know, and that's the thing too. It's not only, you know, he was annoyed and he could have just, you know, been a dick, but he was a dick and he made it really funny. So <laughs> that made it all totally acceptable. Totally. <laughs> I don't think that waiter is going to be listening to, to us anymore after this episode, though, and publicly, you know, humiliating him. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Richard Godwin's story, uh, that was just crazy. I, I, first of all, feel kind of bad for, for Keaton making Amy Luke read that, but what an interesting story. Um, she did a fantastic job reading that story. And doesn't she look really lovely in that kind of shade of bright red that was on her cheeks the whole time? <laughs> yeah, but she, she held it together and she she stayed pretty consistent with her reading, even though it was really messed up stuff. And if I remember correctly, she didn't know what she was reading before she got up there, right? Yeah, she said she kind of looked over it a little bit. But yeah, it was uh, 
it's quite the story, but interesting for a really weird out there story. <laughs> Speaking of weird and out there, um, Joshua Schriftman's story was uh, was also very good. But but I'll tell you this: I listened to this um, at work, and I had my my headphones on, and man, was that nerve wracking! The the yelling, which was so done so well in the story, and really conveyed that that kind of crazy message. But man, I was like a nervous wreck after listening to that in headphones. Yeah, hopefully um, I did an okay job of kind of normalizing some of the the volume levels because this dude was really belting it out. Like, uh, uh, and and I, yeah, it was really interesting to be there. I mean, to be where we were, we were basically sitting right next to the guy because we had the microphone, so it was like completely right in our face. <laughs> it's a little bit unexpected. <laughs> Yeah, but good stuff all the same, too. So uh, congratulations to Amy for pulling off what had to be a difficult reading for anybody and for uh, Mr. Schriffman, who followed that up and, man, just just carried it right on into the next story. That guy had some energy, man. That's all I'm going to say. He had some serious energy. Yeah, and now that we're done talking about three, one more thing i got to mention is what the hell was Keaton talking about and why is he borrowing that other guy's underwear? Yeah, and why was he wearing it that night? Like, I, I have no idea. Maybe he, we're missing something. I don't know. I don't know, but like we're again, we were standing right up at the front where the readings are happening, and there's not a stage or anything. It's just like you know tables and chairs. So David James Keaton is standing there, literally a foot away from me, with his finger, like his thumb, <laughs> hooked into the waistband of his underwear. <laughs> so again, talk about it's interesting to listen to. Imagine being there, sitting in a chair, staring like eye level at the underwear in question. It was really uh, <laughs> quite an experience. You know, I've got a good night. Why don't we each send David James Keaton? Hell, why doesn't everybody <laughs> listening send David James Keaton a pair of underwear? Yeah. If anybody's interested, let us know. We will uh, uh, see if we can find a, a, a somewhere, some way to, to get some underwear to David James Keaton. Right. Uh, we've gotten a little off track again. So at any rate, that's our second installment of the Shindig in Chi-Town. Much more great stuff to come. We're only uh, halfway through at this point. But while you're waiting for the next installment, why don't you kick back a few episodes and uh, take a look at our intro to Hard Boiled episode featuring Nick Corpon, where he comes on and teaches us about the hard boiled genre. All right. So that'll wrap it up for our second of four uh, Shindig in Chi-Town episodes. That's it for now. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. I heard my mama cry.